Good morning. Man, you look sharp. I love your sweater. Thanks, Pastor Jeff. I'm embarrassed by your sweater. There's one to rule them all. (laughs) Do you really think that's appropriate to preach with? Okay, let me tell you the story. No, there's no story. Mr. (laughs) Senior. So we, we all can agree. We have a gracious senior pastor, faithfully teaches God's word, loves Jesus. Sometimes he can be a bit misleading, though. You don't know that about Jeff. He's a bit mischievous at times. So Friday night, I'm Christmas shopping with my wife. I get a text, Jeff Hines, copied with my friend Andrew. Hey, sermon wardrobe for Sunday, ugly Christmas sweater. And maybe I was just overly excited, because I text back right away, perfect, I'm going to wear it. I hear nothing from Andrew. I hear no other change to the plan. So I show up on a Sunday morning, and guess who's the only person wearing a Christmas sweater? I think we would all agree Jeff's sweater's a little ugly, too. That's true. That's a real ugly sweater, and the tie. What is that, snowman? What is it? So anyway, pray for Jeff's sanctification. (laughs) You were punked by a senior citizen? Come on. All right, let's get to the sermon. Let's not talk about that. I've been punked too many times in my life. Let's pray. Father God, uh, thank you for the opportunity to study the gospel of Matthew. Today, Matthew 1, the genealogy. Father, we readily confess that sometimes we move right over this section. It just doesn't seem all that important to us. And yet it has some profound lessons to offer. And so, Father, we pray as we look at Parts of this section, parts of the genealogy of our Savior Jesus Christ, that you might inform us of some new lessons, some new thoughts, and give us an appreciation for your Son, the Christ of Christmas. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, since you and I are going to talk about genealogies today, I thought I would start with a little bit of my genealogy. Quite frankly, my genealogy is pedantic. It's boring. It's yawn city. We have a couple individuals that perhaps are somewhat famous. Probably the second most famous of my relatives is General Horatio Gates, the former adjutant general of the Continental Army. I think that's a pretty striking family resemblance there, Jeff. It's got to be the gray hair. The dude looks good. (laughs) Well, the adjutant general, that is an individual who's essentially the supply corps officer. He's the one that makes sure that you have the right clothes, the right boots, You have the right muskets and balls, and you can send the enemy out dying. You can fight a good war. And so that's what his job is. The problem with this role is that you're not a battlefield general. You don't get the ribbons. You don't get the notoriety. You don't get the medals. So General Horatio Gates was a little upset about his job. He wanted to be a battlefield commander. He finally got his chance. 
It was during the battles of Saratoga, and he became a battlefield general. Now, historians are divided on how he did. They're usually divided into one of three camps. They call him a coward. That's camp number one. Camp number two is that he judiciously kept his men back from the front line until he could ensure their safety. Or camp number three, going back to the coward, he was a coward who was an opportunist. And so when the battles were won, he took credit himself while credit was actually due the men and the other officers. Any way you look at it, the guy's a coward, he's a weasel. In fact, he underhandedly actually went to the Continental Congress and asked them to fire George Washington and make him the Continental General-in-Chief. That's my second favorite or second infamous relative. A little depressing, isn't it? My most famous relative is Betsy Ross. Uh, my oldest cousin, Ross, is named after Betsy Ross and actually has a corner cupboard that we believe belonged to Betsy Ross herself. In every way, she was a patriot. Whether she designed the flag or sewed the first flag, historians are unsure, but without a doubt, she was a patriot. And perhaps that's the redeeming quality in my family tree. We have a lot of enlisted and officer individuals who faithfully have served our country as patriots. But by and large, my genealogy is boring. Yon City, pedantic. So I thought, well, I got these two guys up here. I wonder what theirs was like. So I said, Andrew, what is your history like? And this is a direct quote. He said, my lineage is of ill repute. <laughs> wow. That got my interest. I got out a piece of paper and pen and say, do tell. Now I'm looking for like Jesse James, Doc Holliday. And he says he has a distant relative that served in the Third Reich. And he has a few cousins that were younger that didn't do so well in their teen years. Like that's all over the place. Boring. We'll move on. So I turned to Isaiah and I said, tell me about your family. He said, we got nothing. A few teenagers made a couple bad choices. That is totally it. So the next time I do a sermon on genealogies, I'm going to go to some of my shadier co-workers. And I've got a few. I'll probably go to the Dans. Dan McDonald and Dan Shields. They're so pastoral. They've got to have something covering, you know, something in that skeleton closet of theirs. Well, anyway, Jesus also has a genealogy and it starts out so pedantic. It seems so boring. Let me read verses eight and nine. Joram begat Uzziah. Boring. Uzziah begat Jotham, whoever he is. Jotham begat Dave Mahler, a bunch of old guys from ancient history. There's like nothing interesting at all. But let me start with verse 17 and we'll go backwards. 
So all the generations, from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Three times you and I are told that there are 14 generations. 14 times three is 42. We have 42 generations, not 41, not 43. We have 42. So some sincere, well-meaning individuals who are perhaps a bit ignorant about ancient genealogies use genealogies to somehow date humanity. The reasoning goes something like this. From now to the time of Christ was about 2,000 years. From the crime of Christ to Abraham is 42 generations. We can kind of figure that out and then go a little further back to Adam and Eve and we can date humanity. It makes sense. Except that that's not how genealogies in the first century Hebrew world worked. Now, if I'm doing a genealogy today, I got to list all the bad characters, all the bad apples, the black sheep of the family. You can't skip them because if you're going to do a genealogy, you got to be honest and you got to list them. So like if I were related to Brian Niemeyer and his Adonis locks of hair, I'd have to list him, right? But if I lived 2,000 years ago, I could omit him because I don't want him in my genealogy. You just have to list the highlights. We can't take 21st century Western genealogy rules and apply it to the first century in the Middle East. That's not fair. And in the first century, when you gave your genealogy, you listed those you wanted to include and you excluded those who you want to exclude. For instance, verse 8 says, Joram, who's also called Jehoram, is the father of Uzziah. Except he's not. If you go to 2 Kings 8, you discover that Joram is the great, great grandfather of Uzziah. He skips three generations, three other kings. Now you might say, "Uh uh-oh, we got an inerrancy issue. We got a lie in the Bible. No, no. First, remember, you don't have to include anyone you don't want to include. But second, the word father actually is the word ancestor. So they are related. We just skipped three generations. And that's only in one couplet. You see, Matthew's purpose is never to tell us how many actual generations separate Abraham and Jesus. His purpose is to give us three couplings, each of which has 14 generations. 14, 14, 14. This is a record. I know most of you know that. There's a few of you that may not. When I was a child, I was told that there were a few heavy rock bands that if you could spin this thing backwards, you would get a subliminal message called backmasking. Well, that's exactly what's going on in Matthew chapter one. 
There is an alpha numeric aspect called gematria where letters equal numbers and you add the numbers up and it gives you a message. Now there are entire books on pneumatology in the Bible. They're not very accurate. There's actually only a few of these that really exist in the Bible. 666, the mark of the beast. That's pneumatology. That's gematria. That's a form of backmasking. That's exactly what Matthew is doing here. He doesn't want to tell you how many generations. He doesn't want you and I to figure out the date of humanity. He wants us to land on 14, 14, 14. Because he wants you to understand who the Messiah is. He's the new David. David is the alphanumeric number 14. Now, in Hebrew, originally there were no vowels. So you would spell David, D-V-D. Three letters. Aleph, Beit, Gamil, Dalif. That's D, four. Now V, Aleph, Beit, Gamil, Dalif, Hey, Vav, six. And then D again, Aleph, Beit, Gamil, Dalif. Four plus six is 10 plus four is 14. It spells David. Because everyone knew that out of the lineage of David would come the new David, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And you remember that Matthew is a Jew who wants to reach Jews. All of the gospels have different audiences. His is the gospel for the Jews who would have understood the alphanumeric numbering and would have understood 14, 14, 14 is the new David, the new David, the new David. The Messiah born in the stable cave is the new David. The Messiah born to Mary is the new David. The Christ of Christmas, the Messiah is the new David. And what does Matthew tell us about the new David in Matthew 9, 13? He did not come for the righteous. He came to save sinners. And that's what the gospel of Matthew is all about. It's to reach out to individuals, bad eggs, bad actors. Individuals like in the genealogy, mess ups. And he came to redeem us through faith in Christ. So we're going to look at a few of the mess ups that you would think would be omitted but are included to give us confidence in the redemptive work of Christ. Yeah, the first character that I would love to talk about can really be defined in two words that I think would surprise a lot of us in the room. Here, here are the two words I feel like define our first character. Pagan prostitute. Probably not a phrase or a couple of words you expect to hear in the lineage of David, but this is exactly how we see our first character that I want to talk about defined. Her name was Rahab. Uh, we were first introduced to Rahab in the book of Joshua chapter 2, and this is also how Joshua defines her. Notice this in chapter 2, verse 1 of, of our text. It says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly to spy, to Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. So again, we know the first thing about Rahab. She is a pagan prostitute. 
But what's going on at this time period in our text? Well, during this season of history, Moses had just died. Joshua is now leading the nation of Israel. And you remember, God had promised them the promised land. And on their quest to the promised land, there were going to be certain nations that needed to be destroyed. And the Canaanites were one of them. And this is where we are introduced to Rahab. She's a Canaanite prostitute. Jericho is a Canaanite city, one of the cities on Israel's list to be destroyed. And so in order for Joshua and his his leaders to get some military intelligence, they send these two spies to scope out the city of Jericho. And this is where they are introduced to Rahab. Now, evidently, these men are not very good at spying. Maybe it's their first mission because they get busted right away. They're caught. They're caught red-handed. And so once word gets back to the king of Jericho, that there are a couple of spies in his city gathering military intelligence because they're going to attack, of course, he's upset. If you're in charge, I'm sure you would be upset as well. I know I for sure would be. And so the king, in retaliation, raises up a couple of messengers of his own, and he sends them to Rahab to kind of square away everything. Now, I think in reality, he wants these two spies And he wants them gone. He's probably on their their way to kill them. That's what he wants. (laughs) And so when the spies are are there, Rahab does something interesting with these two men. And she also does something interesting with the two messengers that she has interaction with. As we look further into Joshua 2, verses 4 to 7, we're going to notice what she does, not only with the spies, but how she interacts with the messengers of the king. Notice what these verses say. It says, but the woman had taken the two men, meaning the spies, and hidden them. And then she said, these are the messengers of the king. True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. There's a lie. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. Lie number two. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Lie number three. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them, talking about the spies, with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men, the messengers, pursued after them on their way to Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. We now know our second thing about Rahab. She's a liar. She's not an honest person. And I think there are a couple of things that we see happening in in Rahab's life in this moment. The first one we have to remember, she's a Canaanite. Canaanites are very immoral people. They're pagan people. They don't honor God as king. They do not worship the Lord. So immorality or things like lying, it would have been really easy for Rahab to participate in. It would have just felt normal. That's a part of the culture. Lying would have been as easy as breathing. It's just what happened. So that's the first one. But I think the second thing that's at play here is very deep and powerful and and it's actually beautiful. I think Rahab is exercising what is called the sacred duty of hospitality. Simply what this means is when a guest would enter into someone's home, they were thought of as God himself visiting their home. They were going to pull out all the stops. They were going to make sure this guest got the royal treatment, the finest food, great company. They were going to be warmly welcomed. They were also going to be protected. I don't think that was just an ancient Middle Eastern culture. I think that's happening even in our modern era. In fact, I read an article not too long ago about a missionary named Dr. Cyrus Hamlin. And he was invited as he was serving in the Middle East to have dinner with a very prominent leader of the region. And the leader pulled out all the stops. He wanted Dr. Hamlin to be cared for and just experience Middle Eastern hospitality. 
And as he was serving the main course, which was a piece of mutton, he gave it to Dr. Hamlin and said, as I'm giving you this piece of meat, we are now brothers. You are safe in my territory as long as you are in my home and no drop of blood will be shed from you. I will protect you. You are my brother. The governor was practicing the sacred duty of hospitality. I will care for you. And I believe this is what Rahab is doing as well. You're in my home. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to care for you. And that's exactly what she does. And then she also sends the king's representatives on a wild goose chase. And at this point, Rahab begins to have another dialogue with these two spies. Because we begin to see and learn a little bit more about Rahab's heart. See, she actually confesses to these spies, hey, this God that you serve that dried up the Red Sea, I've heard about him. This God that has provided victory after victory in battle, I've heard of him. In fact, this God of Israel, I believe, is the God of the universe. This is Rahab's confession. So now we know our third thing. She's a woman of faith. She believes in God. And she confesses this to these two spies. And then she asks for something really big. She obviously knows that the battle's coming. Uh, they had gathered enough intelligence to make a, a, a wise move. And so she says, hey, when your army comes to destroy Jericho, I just have one request. Please spare me and my family. Please make sure that we go unharmed. And the spies were so moved by Rahab's faith, by her hospitality, that they actually agreed to this. Notice what they say in the text. Our life for yours, even to death. They agree to her request, but with an addendum. If you do not tell this business of ours, then the Lord gives us the land. He will deal kindly and faithfully to you and your family. Basically, they're saying, you keep our secret and we'll keep you safe. And that's what happened. It's in the ensuing days as Israel comes and marches to Jericho and destroys the city and everything in it, Rahab and her family, they're spared. They, they're left unharmed. So a question that I would have if I'm reading this story is, how would the rest of the army know? I, I get how the two spies, though, they've seen Rahab, they've interacted. But what about the, actually the troops that are storming and marching into battle? How do they know? Well, see, before the spies went into the mountains to hide, they actually told Rahab, please tie a scarlet thread out of your window, probably more than likely a rope. And this will be a sign to anyone in our, in our camp that we know this family is to be left unharmed. And that's what they do. And this family is unharmed. They are not destroyed in Jericho. And literally outside of a few items, which is a story for another day, everything else in the city is destroyed. Jericho is defeated. The promised land is one step closer. So we think about Rahab. Why would Rahab a pagan prostitute, be included in the genealogy of Christ. We may be able to come with several reasons, but one reason that I think of is this. God loves to turn the misfits into masterpieces. He does this in the life of Rahab, doesn't he? We see that he used her in such a powerful way, and then we go to Matthew 1, and there she is included in the genealogy of Christ, and we see it so clearly. See, Rahab later on in her life married a man named Solomon, and they had a son named Boaz. Now, Boaz met a, a lady down the road who Andrew will talk about in a moment named Ruth, and they had a son named Obed. And Obed, a little later on in his life, had a son named Jesse, and Jesse had a son named David, as in King David, the Messiah's it was to come through the line of David. Now we see Rahab as a prominent fixture in that genealogy. And I love how God put those pieces together and shows a pagan prostitute to be a part 
of this. I, I love that. And as we look a little bit further, even into the New Testament, what, what, what I find so fascinating is Rahab is not really known so much for her career choice, but she's definitely known for her faith. Think of Hebrews chapter eleven thirty one, And we see the writer say, by faith, Rahab, uh, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, as in the rest of Jericho, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. What's Rahab remembered for? Her faith. And then we see in James 2.25, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Again, she's remembered for her faith in the God of the universe, which resulted in her harboring and bringing safety to these spies. She's reminded for her faith. She's, we remember, we see in scripture, she was a faithful person and God uses misfits and often turns them into wonderful masterpieces. But she wasn't the only one. In fact, Pastor Andrew's gonna talk now to us about a lady named Ruth who's also on this list in this genealogy that is a bit unsuspecting. As we continue Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter one, we do encounter a second surprising character, a Moabite named Ruth. Now, when we hear that Ruth is a Moabite, that probably doesn't mean anything significant to us. However, if you are an ancient Israelite, that is a very significant piece of information. You see, the Israelites and the Moabites hated each other. They did not get along. Uh, the Moabites were descendants of a man named Moab, and Moab was tragically the result of an incestuous relationship between Abraham's nephew Lot and his oldest daughter after Sodom and Gomorrah have been destroyed. So not your hallmark Christmas movie origin for a family. However, that's not even the primary reason that the Israelites disliked the Moabites. You see, in the mid-15th century BC, when the nation of Israel was leaving Egypt to enter into the promised land, right before they entered into the promised land, they settled and made camp in the plains of Moab. And as they're in the plains of Moab, the Moabite people are getting nervous of this people that's coming through. So their king, Balak, gets very nervous and hires a malicious prophet named Balaam to come and curse the people of Israel so that he might go out in battle, destroy them, and excise them from the land. Nothing says welcome to the neighborhood like your new neighbor going out and hiring a shaman to curse your family so you die. So we can see that the relationship between the people of Israel and Moab is fraught with conflict and disdain. And going back to Jeff's earlier section of uh, the message, we've learned that when you are constructing a first century Hebrew genealogy, you have the ability to leave out characters you don't want to name. So if I'm Matthew and we have this relationship with the Moabites, Ruth is going to be the first name on the chopping block. But for some reason, the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to retain Ruth, the Moabite, and name her specifically in the genealogy. And here's why I think that is. I think Ruth's story truly showcases God's amazing grace, an amazing spiritual principle that we'll see at the end. Now, if you want to read Ruth's story in totality, it won't take you very long. You could do it this afternoon. It'd probably take you 30 minutes. It's recorded in four short chapters in the Old Testament in a book that bears her name. We won't have time to look at the whole book this morning, but I do want to give a little bit of a primer to rightly understanding this book. Here's how the story begins in Ruth chapter 1 verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. 
And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So let's go ahead and pause there for a moment because this verse really gives us some vital background information to rightly understanding the book of Ruth. First, notice what time period this story takes place. It's during the days when the judges ruled in Israel. Now, whenever we hear when the judges ruled in Israel, there should be a little voice in the back of our head that says, boo, right? The judges were not great guys, They're not great gals. They, they were working in a time period of the nation of Israel that's known for being a spiritual low point, not a spiritual high point. Remember the refrain from the book of Judges. It was the time period when everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was not a king in the land. This was a period of widespread immorality, idolatry, and spiritual rebellion. And that's precisely why we see such a famine taking place. Uh, if you remember, the people of Israel through the Mosaic Covenant had a unique relationship with the Lord. The Mosaic Covenant had very specific uh, ideas that if the nation of Israel would obey the Lord, he would bless them as a nation. If they disobeyed, he would punish them and sing curses their way. You can read all of those in Deuteronomy 28. And guess what one of the main curses or punishments was for spiritual idolatry and rebellion? It was famine. So whenever there's famine in the land, that should be a check engine light on the spiritual dashboard to say, hey, we've got some issues. We need to repent. We need to get right with God. But Israel didn't like to look at that. They were probably like a lot of us and just ignore the check engine light and hope it goes away. And they just doubled down and uh, the famine continued. The famine gets so severe that a guy named Elimelech moves his entire family out of the promised land into the region of Moab. Listen to verse two. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now again, this verse probably doesn't seem very noteworthy to us, but if you're a 12th century Jew, you recognize that this is kind of ominous. There's some bad things going on here. Elimelech is leading his family away from Israel where the presence of the Lord is. And instead he's traveling east with his family into the pagan territory of the Moabites. I'm from the East Coast. Then you're east is good. No, you're going to be offended. East is bad as we're getting ready to see. Traveling east in the Bible is not a good thing. Moving east is often a literary device that shows someone moving away from the presence of the Lord. So Cain left the Lord's presence after he murdered Abel and went to the east. People traveled east to build the Tower of Babel. Lot traveled east to Sodom and Gomorrah. Judah was exiled to Babylon in the east. You go east to watch the Yankees play. All of these are examples of moving away from God's presence. Hey, so, you, you know what else is east? At what, least east of Wausau. What's that? The Green Bay Packers. Oh. Wait, you know what's east of the Green Bay Packers? The Bears. We don't have to talk about that, though. They That's, they're south. That's not east. They're south. Literally. So back to the story. My theology works here. So everyone up here is from the east. So not a good... Not, not, so the original audience reads that Elimelech and his family move east into hostile pagan territory. They're probably thinking, you know, something not good is going to happen. That's exactly what happens next. Uh, it continues on verse three. But Limelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left there with her two sons. They took Moabite wives, which is also a violation of the Mosaic Covenant. And then uh, the name of one was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth. 
they lived there about 10 years. And both uh, Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So we see in the decade that Naomi is in Moab, she experiences uh, just a time period of loss. She loses her husband. She loses her two sons. Later on in the book, we find out that the family land had to be mortgaged just so they could survive. So she's in financial ruin. Her decade in Moab changes her so that when she goes back to Israel, she doesn't even want to be called Naomi anymore. She demands to be called Mara because she says the Lord has dealt bitterly with me and Mara means bitter. So she's leaving a broken and bitter widow. However, there's a character who's been mentioned, but not named in the story so far. And this character winds up being a faithful friend worthy of remembering and admiring. Look at verse six. Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as he has dealt, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of your future husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters, why go with me? Later on, she says, no, my daughters, this is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more if anything but death parts me from you. And throughout the book, we see example after example of God using Ruth to deliver Naomi and her entire family's name from ruin and despair. She is an agent of redemption for that family. And at the end of the book of Ruth, uh, the author makes it explicitly clear that Ruth was also a vessel of redemption for the nation of Israel. Because through Ruth, as she later marries Boaz, comes David, the king who rescues Israel from their period of spiritual darkness darkness, and rebellion. So we see that in these verses, Ruth courageously shows what it looks like to follow the Lord. She leaves behind her culture. She leaves behind her pagan idols. She leaves behind even her family in order to worship the true God of Israel and to love her mother-in-law, Naomi, well. She is an amazing woman. And I believe these verses show why Matthew included Ruth and Jesus' pedigree. Ruth exemplifies the beautiful principle that all that is required to be part of God's family is faith. God didn't care that Ruth was a Moabite. God wasn't prejudiced against her because of her past. She was able to be faithful despite the things in her past that seemingly would have put her at odds with the Lord. She is in the story because as a repentant, regenerate pagan, she shows that God has a heart to come and save sinners. Jesus' grace extends to all who love God and are willing to seek him out in faith. 
So while we don't have time to examine all of the characters in Jesus' lineage, Pastor Jeff is going to highlight a few other characters and weave together a theme that we see throughout the genealogical account. So we'll start in verse 2. Here we have Abraham. And we read Abraham and we say, oh yeah, good. Genesis 12, he's the father of all nations. James 2, he's a model of faith. And those are both true. But he's also not husband of the year, right? I mean, the guy has got to be like the worst husband in the history of the Bible. His wife, Sarai, is beautiful. And he's afraid that someone's going to bump him off because of her beauty and want to marry her. So on two occasions that we know of, he says to his wife, hey, tell everyone you're my sister, not my wife. And at least once she ends up in somebody else's harem. Not exactly husband of the year. I probably would have photoshopped him out of the family picture. You don't have to include him. Why bother? Yet the Christ of Christmas came for a mess up like Abraham. Then we go downhill. Look at verse three. Here we have Judah. Judah fathered his own grandchild. That's possible. He found a prostitute who had a veil over her face, who turned out to be his daughter-in-law, Yach. And yet he is included in the genealogy of Christ. So we have some immorality in that genealogy because Christ came to save sinners. He didn't come for those who are righteous. Then there's David, verse six. Now David is a man after God's own heart, right? Samuel 13. And yet sometimes we feel like the bar is pretty low for David. He committed murder, Uriah the Hittite. He committed adultery, Bathsheba. I read the text that he probably raped her. I think that he is a moral failure. And yet, Jesus is the new David. Not a moral failure, moral perfection, but of the lineage of David, including David, because he came for sinners who have messed up big. That's the Christ of Christmas. Then we have Solomon, his son in verse seven. You remember Solomon's first marriage. That's the Song of Solomon. Shulamite, that was a wonderful marriage. We're not exactly sure what happened to her. Probably she died. He got in the mind that he wanted to remarry like 300 times. And then he had 700 concubines. And then we read his journal, that's Ecclesiastes, where he's looking for fulfillment under the S-U-N, without the S-O-N, without the Lord. He's made a, a mess of his life. But Christ came for someone like Solomon. And then the next verse, verse seven, we have Rehoboam. That's Solomon's son. He inherits 12 tribes, 12 for the big kingdom. And yet within a week or two, he overtaxes the people. He refuses to listen to the people. Five, six of the tribes secede. He's an utter failure. And yet he's part of the lineage, the Christ of Christmas, 
came for someone like Rehoboam. And then verse 10, Manasseh. He rules for 55 years. 54 years and 11 months. He is among the most evil rulers the Bible ever gives us. The prophet Isaiah, my son is named after him. Manasseh sawed him in two. That's how Isaiah died. In 2 Chronicles 33, he sacrificed children to Moloch, including some of his own sons. He set up the high places and the Asherah poles. He was a vile, vile man with a deathbed conversion. And he's part of the genealogy of Christ because the Christ of Christmas, the new David, came for him. And this is good news. Matthew tells us in Matthew 9, 13, Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. He came for people like you, people like me. He came to turn mess-ups into masterpieces as you shared earlier. I think that's a good phrase. I didn't touch you because you're the mess up. You would have gone this way if that's what I I wasn't sure if I should be thankful or offended at that moment. (laughs) Praise the Lord that he came for people like us. Never crossed my mind. As we close out our time this morning, Isaiah and I would like to share just a couple quick words of application from Jesus' lineage. Here's mine. God doesn't call the qualified. No, I'm just kidding. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies those whom he calls. You know, all all throughout Jesus' lineage, God surprises us with his choices. He doesn't call those that would appear to be qualified due to pedigree or position or importance or giftedness. Instead, he often chose to use the lowly, the humble, the broken, and the marginalized. God's choice reminds us that he doesn't choose us because of things that we have done. He chooses us in spite of who we are and what we've done and what we bring to the table. It's the same reality that the apostle Paul reiterates in 1 Corinthians 1 when he's talking to the church of Corinth. Talk about the pep talk, Paul. He says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were very smart. (laughs) Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring them to nothing, things that are, so that human beings might not boast in the presence of God. I think what we see here is that God doesn't choose us because we're anything special. He chooses us in spite of the fact that we are all bad apples. I think that's an incredible thing because sometimes we don't feel particularly qualified and that's okay. The only qualification that God needs is that we trust in Jesus, turn away from our sins and make him the savior of our lives. And when we do that, the only right response to God's amazing grace is humility, gratitude, and humble service. God didn't call us because we had anything to offer. He called us in spite of what we brought to the table. Yeah, my my takeaway is along those same lines. And I do a survey of the genealogy of Christ. Really one thought came to my mind is God sees what we don't and redeems what we can't. I mean, think about this, the, just the, 
just the folks that Jeff talked about in his portion of the sermon. That is an all-star cast of misfits. And yet God sees what we don't and redeems what we can't. And, and Jesus, this Christ of Christmas that we worship and celebrate this time of the year, this is why he came. This is why he took on flesh to redeem those that cannot do anything for themselves. And, and when I think about a person like Rahab, we see this, don't we? Or when the world saw a prostitute, God saw a daughter. When the world wanted to push Rahab to the fringes, God welcomed her into his family because he sees what we don't and redeems what we can't. This is the whole point of the gospel, that we have no ability to save ourselves, no ability to bring ourselves into a right relationship with God on our own. That is by our faith in the work of Christ alone. And when we do that, we do receive a new identity. I love what Paul says in Colossians 3.3. 3. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Meaning we are now at union with Christ. His righteousness is covering us. And as God looks at us, he declares us righteous because of our faith in his son, Jesus. And God sees what we don't and redeems what we can't. Maybe we felt like one of the misfits we've talked about today. Maybe you felt disregarded and uh, excused from society, maybe even worthless. God sees what we don't and redeems what we can't. Christ, this Christ of Christmas died on a cross that we might have salvation, and eternal life in his son, Jesus. I pray that you experience that this season. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this time to just look at this genealogy and be reminded of how faithfully and how mysteriously you worked throughout redemptive history. We don't always understand it, Lord, but we are so grateful that you have brought in every single person in this list to uh, be a part of the genealogy of Christ that we can learn from, we can study today, Lord. So we're so grateful you brought this about. God, be with us over these next few days as we approach Christmas season. May our hearts be drawn to this Christ of Christmas. And God, may we, we worship him. And God, may we glorify him with our lives. It's in his name we pray. Amen.